You are listening to the Alligator Podcast, a podcast where the independent Florida Alligator, one of the largest student newspapers in the country, discusses our latest stories on the University of Florida, Gainesville, and beyond. Subscribe and tune in weekly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud to hear our latest episodes on news, sports, and much more. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Alligator, as well as find all of our latest stories at alligator.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Alligator Podcast. My name is Thomas Holton. I hope you're doing well wherever you're listening from. This is the news section of the podcast. Today we have a very special guest. You can go ahead and introduce yourself. Um, hey everyone. My name is Abdul Qadri Abir. I'm a 21-year-old junior electrical engineering major at the University of Florida, a Nigerian as well. Thank you for coming on again, man. So what we're going to talk about today is something that people in the States and just a lot of people around the world just figured out or just learned about last month, but it's been building slowly over many years and it's continued to develop since last month. And that's just what's happening with SARS, the special anti-robbery squad in Nigeria. So to start off, could you talk a little bit about where in Nigeria you're from and a little bit about your upbringing there? So I'm from Lagos, Nigeria. I was born there and I was raised there. But I mean, I only really went, so my upbringing was more, I spent a small part of my childhood at home. That was up till about 12 years old. And then I moved to a boarding school. And then I've been in like boarding school or been, you know, away from my parents for as long as I can remember now, since like 2016. No, 2012 actually, I think. So yeah, that was kind of it. I had my childhood there, my education there, you know, so I got to grow up around my own culture. You can, um, then I became an international student and my education took out of the country. So you said boarding school. Like how, where have you like been? You've been all across the country, the world? I've only gone to school in two other countries. That's the first, my first boarding high school in Nigeria. And then I went to a school in Italy for the International Baccalaureate Diploma. I don't know, people aren't very familiar with the IV Diploma. So I went to an IV school in Italy for two years. Then I gained admission to come to you. I don't know how much you were able to like gain since you moved away, like right at the end of like your, your childhood, but what did you, like what role did police and SARS like play? Was it like a commonly, just like commonly understood thing, like what they were, what role did they play? I feel you, mate. No, I haven't moved away. That's why I called it boarding school because even now I go back home during the holidays, you tell me? So even in these years, like I have gone back home a couple of times. And so SARS is something that even, like, you know, they're a unit of the police that everyone's very familiar with. You know, I didn't know that they've always been what they were today because I didn't know the history of SARS. When I got to know about them for the first time, not sure when that was, but it wasn't too long ago, maybe two, three years ago. That was when I first got to know about SARS as a unit. But apparently they've existed for quite a while before that. And there have been issues also before that. But they were put in place to help policing in local communities, you know, like to stop petty robberies and those kinds of things. That was initially why they were put in place from my understanding. But now it's turned into something else where they extort people, they bully, like they, they bully us like citizens, literally. They see you walking with a phone that looks nice, you probably stole it, you know, and they profile people based on their appearances. If you have dreadlocks, for example, your life is in danger because they can see you, there's this, Bro, it's so much, man. 
because you kind of have to understand the community at home to understand why these profilings happen you know but like at the end of the day it's still wrong that it happened like there are people back home for example they're involved in things like fraud and they have particular appearance you know so there are people who they've seen involved in fraud quote and unquote they've had dreadlocks they've had this kind of appearances and because of that now if you have that kind of appearance you're automatically profiled you know as a fraudster that's why it's dangerous. You have piercings, you have tattoos. They think you're in a gang. You know, it's oppressive. It's very, very oppressive, the system, the way it is right now. It's gone from something that was supposed to protect to something that is intimidating, something that is oppressing, something that violates our rights, literally. You know people back in Nigeria that have been profiled in the, like, in the way that you mentioned? Sir, I've had a run-in with SARS. But it wasn't based on profiling. They were just doing stop and searches and they stopped us. We had nothing on us. But, you know, it's the middle of the night. We're on the way home. You know, like if anything happens, no one's going to hear, you know, and they started intimidating us, you know, that kind of thing. But I've had, I know people who have, because of their appearances, because of their piercings, been, you know, been profiled and been harassed by stars. I don't know, the person I would tell you, I don't know him personally, but I could direct you to like his Instagram or something because he's very vocal about this. So he speaks about it on there, his experiences with them. Um, And I'm also not sure his name right now because, yeah, you know, I just follow him because I like what he says, but I could hook you up with him as well. He has been profiled multiple times. He has been stopped. My friend has been stopped because he had a flat top afro. You feel me? And in Nigeria, yeah. that is considered hooliganish. I don't even know if hooliganish, but you feel me? Like, it's considered, like, ghetto to have a flat top, you know? Like, it's, it's, it's just it's crazy, man. So what was your situation like in terms of the Lagos shooting that kind of, like, kick-started this uh, worldwide movement, the NSARS uh, hashtag, which was trending everywhere, protests, Nigerian celebrities, worldwide celebrities, like all getting in, like when, when that first kicked off, like what was your mindset and what were you, what were you doing? I want to take you a bit back before the shooting, when even the protest kicked off in the first, like in the beginning, was the proudest moment to be a Nigerian, not going to lie. Because me, I, you know, I've grown up in Nigeria, like I haven't been blind to these problems. We've all not been blind to these problems, you know? But I don't think we as a people have ever had this kind of courage, you know, my generation, because I think the generational protests happen against the government. When my dad was growing up, there were people who protested against the government violation of human rights and they were prosecuted. So, you know, it was a very proud moment to see that my generation had finally found that courage, you know. So it was it was really nice at the beginning. You know, I, I was so optimistic. I was so happy because, you know, it's like peaceful protest, like literally what's the worst that could happen? You know, that was my whole mindset. Like I was already talking with my friends here, I'm excited for the future. And then fast forward a few weeks into the protest, a few days, I don't know, 14 days into the protest or something like that. And there was a demonstration that was supposed to be a peaceful, you know, sitting. And the military pulled up and they shot people. That was, for me, that just, that broke my heart because I'd never felt so helpless in my life. Like, you know, I I saw a video, um, you know, I'm, so one thing you have to know is in my generation, our communication, a lot of this NSARS, like it really revolves heavily around Twitter. You know, not Facebook, not Instagram, like 
Twitter is where the people coordinating, the people planning logistics. Like I, I saw these people working them out on the TL. Someone would post, yo, this person got arrested, needs a legal team, blah, blah, blah. And someone would reply, yo, I got this link. Like, so, you know, like Twitter was a very key thing in all of this. So even before they started shooting, um, we, I saw, I personally, and I sent this video to my family group chat. I saw a warning video. A lady was crying, you know, she said they're going to shoot people. And for me, it was baseless because the military hadn't pulled up. Nothing had happened yet, you know? So I just, so I was just like, this lady is just like, you know, maybe she's delusional. Like there's no way people sitting at the gate is going to lead to them pulling up to shoot people. But I still shared it with my family anyways, because I wanted them to see that I saw it. But I didn't believe it at that point, you know, and then strange things started happening. The lights at the gate, at the tour gate started going off. The military personnel arrived, you know, and that was just, you know, if I had imagined the future would have gone in any direction out of the infinite ways that the future could have gone, that would not have been one of them. So yeah. it was a very shocking thing for me. Like me, I was in school trying to do like homework. I had a circ- like circuit two um, homework, you know, trying to grind out for my exam and everything. You know, and then I start seeing on Twitter that your people are reposting these videos, people are reposting these videos that pe- like this is what's going on at the tour gate. And I was just seeing the videos on Twitter until I saw a tweet that said DJs, like DJ switch. There was a lady at the tour gate who was streaming this live. And so I hopped on the live stream. And when I hopped on the live stream, I saw a guy with a bullet in his leg. Like, like the, like the lights were off. You could hear the, like you could hear the chaos. You could hear the gunshots. Man, do you know, like it felt like the government killed its people, you know, in broad daylight. And then the next day they tried to cover up and all these things that, you know, there's always going to be government propaganda, quite frankly, you know? But I know what I saw. I know my friends who live around the tour gate. They all had the gunshots, you know, that I'm positive. There is no way what happened that day is whatever the government is saying it is. And it's so disappointing that they're trying to cover this up instead of holding the people who should be held accountable, like, you know, holding them accountable for this. Like, it's just, I don't know, man. Like, now that day was just, it was so heartbreaking, honestly. Like, I never imagined that would have ever been the case. Yeah, and you mentioned how Twitter is like, it cuts through a lot of like potential cover-ups and like what other people are saying. And then I read that in these past couple of weeks, they're trying to put in enforced legislation to better be able to control social media and like mandate the things that go on it. What do you think about that effort? And just speak a little bit more about like how important Twitter has been in this movement and in like pretty much all social movements within the past couple of years. Yeah, so um, on that note, anybody listening to this, if you're Nigerian, you have to say no to that social media bill. Let's start from there. So I know the details of the social media bill because, you know, I've read it, but I didn't memorize it when I read it. But, you know, I would read it and know that this is definitely not what needs to be going on right now in a country where the government is violating human rights. And the only reason we know about it is social media. You can't take that away from people. That is the voice of my generation. I mean, obviously everybody uses, but like for us, that is, that is where we speak. That is where we communicate. That is where we coordinate. Like, you know, even in terms of creating awareness as well, 
when Ensa started, do you know Jack Dorsey, the yeah the CEO video, of Twitter? He said he was like he gave us a goal to meet of a certain number of tweets before we would get our own our own little logo by the side, you know. And we crushed that in like two days or something, or in like two days, like and it was a huge number of tweets that like we were trending. You know, yeah. me, Twitter helps us create that kind of awareness. Twitter helps us share information as well. Quite frankly, I'm here right now. Let's start from the fact that the news agencies are very heavily regulated because the government has lots of things they're trying to hide. They are even themselves owned by the corrupt politicians that the news agencies are supposed to shine their light on. So journalism kind of feels like a crime in Nigeria. I even give you a recent incident that just happened. There was this zoo in a place called Kaduna up north. And then um, a journalist went to the zoo and the animals were so malnourished, like they were starving. Do you understand? Like looking at these animals, if they released them back into the wild, they probably wouldn't still survive. Like they would be the weakest in the pack. Like I could send you these pictures if you want to see. You feel me? Yeah. And that started circulating on Twitter. Again, our source of communication, our source of news. And you know, the next thing that happened was the zoo banned journalists from coming in. This was literally like last week. So the, the mainstream media is very heavily gagged to start, to start with. So I already don't believe a lot of the things that they say. If I didn't, you know, if I didn't hop on the Instagram live, for example, at least if I didn't even see, like, if I didn't hop on it at all, if I didn't even see 10 seconds of it, there might have been some room for doubt in my mind when they were saying nobody died. Can you imagine a governor, like the governor of my state came out to say that nobody died? When I saw somebody with, you know, and the person who got the bullet wound in his leg that I saw, he ended up passing away. At the hospitals, people were rushed to. The, the doctors could testify that they treated patients, you feel me? Like, but the, the governor said no one died, blah, blah, blah. Then that's what the, the media parrots, no one died, you feel me? That's why for me, Twitter is very important. Like as someone who's here and not home, the streets of Twitter are where I get the most authentic news. I mean, it's definitely diluted with a lot of propaganda, fake news, nonsense. But like, you know, that's where for me, being an educated human being comes in because I do my research, you know? I like the fact that I have access to all the information and then I choose which one I want to research. I choose, you know, and then I get to find out more. Not that you, you spoon feed me what is definitely not true. So, you know, that is why the social media regulation that they're trying to enforce to me I would definitely consider this as an attempt to silence our generation, to stifle democracy, because even the minister of, I'm not sure what his minister of, but he's a popular, he's, a, he's an important person in the country. His name is Lai Mohammed. And when he's giving these examples of why they need to regulate social media, you know, fake news, blah, blah, blah. He gives examples of places like China, for example, that are communist states, are where politicians get executed for corruption, where, you know, the politician is not above the country. You feel me? So they, they want a system to hold us accountable for the things we say because they don't want us to hold them accountable for the things they do. And that, that's, that's how I feel about the social media bill. Um, so, you know, anyone, if you're listening to this and you're a Nigerian, in any way you can't um, try to do something about it. If it's to sign a petition, if you're home and you could call your local representative, your local senate, your senator, like, you know, please do that. If it's to send an email because... If you're listening to this, I'm sure you know that what I'm saying is not just, you know, I'm not just making this up. And if the government is able to regulate social media, like they're going to set us back all the progress we've made in accountability. They're going to set us back so much. You know, like where do we hold them accountable? It's literally on Twitter. 
there was a politician, she was the House of Assembly representative for a community. And the, the summary of her message of her speech at the house was that the youth in Nigeria are, we consume a lot of drugs because she went to school in the UK, you feel me? So what she said was, um, we consume a lot of drugs that she went to school in the UK. People in the UK are also unemployed, but they don't do what we do. They didn't loot, blah, blah, blah. And you can imagine that would never have really been on. I mean, I wouldn't have seen it on the mainstream news because I don't go there. But I saw that someone said that on Twitter. Everyone saw that a representative of a community said this about her constituents and they started a petition to get her removed, which is not something I've ever seen before in my life. Like in my 21 years alive, and maybe in my 10 years of paying attention to Nigerian politics, I've never seen this happen before in such a way. She said it last week, the video got out, we mobilized, and we're going to restart the petition to recall her. Like a proper petition, you know, not change.org petition at the, um, it's called INEC, uh, the Independent National Electoral Committee of Nigeria. So like Twitter is helping us hold these people accountable now. You have governors that said they commissioned a project, they built a bridge, all they did was nail planks across rails that's not a bridge but that's what they said they built as a bridge but now we can see what they're saying they built you know because they would say they built this in the community blah 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 and i don't live in the community so i wouldn't know what they built if it's good or bad i would just say okay they've done something there but now we can see that what they're doing is still nonsense so now you know it's not just about the fact that they say they're doing they have to deliver quality now that is what twitter is helping us do that is the direction I see it going based on the few events that have happened literally like these past few weeks and how my generation is starting to become more politically aware. Like I really see Twitter going in that kind of direction. And I think the government officials see it too. And that is one of the reasons why they, they want to like regulate social media very heavily. Given that like a lot of this movement, like you said, is, is coming from your generation. In Nigeria, is, is there, what's like the generational divide does the older generation, like, what are some things that they hold on to that right now the NSARS movement and young people are trying to, like, trying to dismantle? This older, younger generation divide, it manifests itself in different ways across many platforms, you know? For me, sometimes I see it in the form of tribalism. Because um, when my parents were growing up, like, in that time, a lot of your Nigeria, like, a lot of your identity was heavily tied to your tribe and Nigerian history in itself is not very clean. You know, in the sense that certain like tribes have been wronged. Like that's the only way to say it. You feel me? Like even like imagine a genocide in your country against a tribe. The people of Biafra, for example, is a history of Nigeria that even I need to know more about, but it started coming to light a lot more recently. I do know a bit about it, but I'm not going to go into history class because I don't know all the facts. So, you know, they do have that history of tension between them because of, you know, civil wars, genocide, and things like that. But my generation, I've kind of grown up with these people that they despise in that sense. You know, I'm Yoruba, but, you know, a lot of my parents, if you look at their friends, a lot of their friends are Yoruba as well. You know, it's not even like they have acquaintances, you know, they, they definitely have, you know, friends across all the tribes, all the tribes, but their closest friends are Yoruba. And you obviously know this because every time they're on the phone, they're speaking Yoruba to someone. But for me, my friends are Igbo, my friends are Hausa, my friends are Edo, my friends are Ibibio even. You know, so growing up multiculturally within that country in itself, you know, I don't have the same tribalistic grievances that my parents have towards, I mean, not my parents, you know, but the older generation would have towards like the, the other tribes. 
because my parents, okay, they used to tell me they have stereotypes about other tribes that don't make sense to me because I've gotten to know people from other tribes and you realize it's a character by character thing. You know, for example, we say Igbo people like money, you know? I have met Igbo people that like money, but it's not a bad thing. The way they like money doesn't make them, it makes them work hard. So they do have these stereotypes that for me, like the way it might have manifested when they were growing up, you know, maybe because maybe if they felt like Igbo people when they were growing up, their love for money made them steal from them or something. But for me, my experience with Igbo people that love money is just them working hard, honestly, to make their money. You feel me? So that's one aspect of it. Then there's the religious aspect of it too. Nigeria is a very heavily polarized nation in terms of, I think it's like the ratio of Muslims to Christians is 49, 51, you know, it's not too, it's just very heavy, you know. My generation, we've lived, because of this just multicultural upbringing, you know, we're a bit more tolerant of one another, you feel me? My parents, on the religious note, they don't really have qualms, you know, they never were religious people. But I know people who have parents that if you said you were dating someone and they were Muslim, you know, or they just weren't your religion, it would be such a big deal. And I understand why it's a big deal to them, but that, again, is the my generation part of it is we i think we have a paradigm shift in our mentality that people could practice their religion independently and we could all practice our religions independently and coexist happily and you know like your religion doesn't have to interfere with my religion and so that's another way it manifests and then there's also for example the the dressing the thing i was telling you about bro i have four piercings i think my parents don't know i have one Hopefully they never see this because if they do this, how they're going to find out, which wouldn't be too bad because I'm not home right now, so they can't really say anything. But yeah. I've had one testing for four years. My parents haven't seen this because I hide it from them because my parents profile people based on how they look. But in my generation, like, I don't care how someone looks because it's about what they have to offer. Like, like seriously, like, my parents have told me that, for example, dreadlocks, I used to want to have dreadlocks. And, you know, it's fine that my parents didn't want me to have dreadlocks, you know. But their excuse for me not having dreadlocks was that I would look like a hooligan. That was first their, their justification. Then it started shifting to like religious bases, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, first it was you would look like a hooligan. I don't want my child looking like a hooligan. But I didn't think dreadlocks would have made me look. I just thought it would have made me look cool, you feel me? But even till now, I've never had dreadlocks because bro, if I have dreadlocks when I go home, I'm probably going to have to cut it still. So, you know, it manifests differently. But I think across all the different things that I've mentioned, like there's a very huge divide between, you know, how our generation is able to tolerate. You know, I think the biggest difference in the generations is the ability to tolerate. For me, I know I'm able to reach this level of thought because of my experiences with education and going to school in places where people were completely different from me. I went to a school with 120 countries represented minimum. You know, there were only five Nigerians in the whole school. And you realize everybody is completely different from you, but their lives were not less valid than the life I was living in Nigeria. But a lot of people haven't been able to have that kind of exposure. So I think that is, you know, I think this, this thing about older generation, this older generation mentality is embedded in our system as a community, as a country. While the younger generation mentality is something we're learning. So that's why even though we, you know, we don't really care about all these things, we still have to think about it because I wouldn't think my friend with dreadlocks looked like a hooligan, but if we were going out, I would ask him to put on a hat just because I know he would get harassed.
SARS has been like disbanded a couple times, but then it comes back in a different form. And like, that's what just happened. Like the president, he announced that it was being disbanded, but then SWAT is coming in. And I feel like we have this, we had this conversation over the summer, just like in America about like, there's the initial push and then it trickles away. And like a lot of the people that were there for it kind of go back to what they were doing. And like the people that are directly affected still have to like fight that fight. How do you think this movement can sustain itself long-term and become more than just outrage over a single event? Yeah, so um, one thing I would say is I think my generation realizes this is more about consistency than intensity. You know, like what we're fighting is not one or two bad politicians. You know, it's a whole corrupt political system that allows these people to thrive. It's the whole system that allows policemen with guns to feel like they should harass us because the guns give them more power over us. It's a chain, like, you feel me? So I think we, we, we realize that it's about consistency. I don't think it's ever going to stop because we being more tactic, like, bro, I don't even know how to explain. So, you know, the first way we thought we were going to do this was, you know, the protests, you know, blah, blah, blah. Do you know, in my optimistic, idealistic self, I really, you know, people were tweeting Buhari resigned, you know, because this was an atrocity, you know, like, you know, and in my head, I forgot the kind of, you know, the kind of system it was. I was really wishfully thinking this guy's going to come out and resign tomorrow. But like, obviously that didn't happen. And we realized after this incident on Tuesday that the government is going to fight our peace with Gruella, no matter what, you know. So we're taking it political now. You know, we're creating more awareness, even at the local level, at, at the grassroots level. If you really wanted to, the, the thing is, I just want to say on this podcast, you know, a lot of this is my opinion, uh, not factual, except the things like, you know, like if I said INEX, that is really INEX, you know. Um, so there are people back home who are definitely more involved than this, who have started campaigns, you feel me? So it's something that people have started now, and it's something that I know people will not be reluctant to continue. Like already, for example, there's, I could send you these pictures as well, in communities, you know, Nigerian politicians, a Nigerian senator is one of the highest paid politicians in the world, but Nigeria is the poverty capital of the world. Do you, do, do you see that? Yeah. So in some communities, what they started doing is on, um, what do you call these things, on banners, they started printing out these facts like, your senator ends this much for this, your senator ends this much for this, the senator ends this much for this. So hopefully, because, you know, this government doesn't respect peaceful protests and things like that, you know? So the only way we're going to do this is at the polling booth, hopefully, in 2023. I think we have a realistic, like, you know, because, uh, for example, we're not thinking the next election, you know, whatever happens, we're going to vote someone and everything's going to transform, you know? But we're hoping the next election, we're going to vote, you know, in the same way as people have at the grassroots started mobilizing to create awareness and, you know, change the narrative. We're hoping in 2023, at least I'm hoping, in 2023, we elect someone who's going to start. You know, like, it's not going to be, you know, but it's just a change that I would hope to see significant progress in during my lifetime. So even personally, I'm not going to stop. I felt pretty helpless because I'm here in the U.S. and I can't really do much from here except really donate. But, like, if I was back home, these posters that people made, these banners that people are making, I would definitely fund that. In my in my own estate, in my own neighborhood, in my I would do that in my neighborhood if I was on right now. So this fire to get things to change, 
bro, like I've I told you I've lived a lot like I've lived a significant portion of the last few years of my life outside the country. When you see how good life can be for everyone, you know, like it's a fire that I don't think is gonna die. Not just because of me, but because there are people who believe the same thing that everyone could have a good life in Nigeria, you know? The politicians don't need to steal our money. The politicians need to deliver on their promises. They're people, they're, they're, everyone feels this way. Because truthfully, after the shooting, not even going to lie, after the shooting, I kind of cried a bit, like not a bit, a lot actually the next day, for a couple hours. And I don't know why, like, you know, I would just be writing and tears would just start falling out my eyes. And I felt so hopeless, but I went on Twitter somehow and people's strength gave me strength. You know, people's strength, people's courage, people's comments reminded me why we were fighting this fight, you know? So I think in that way, for as long as it takes, we're going to all keep energizing ourselves. When a certain group of people, like the people back home, they protested, they got shot at. But after that protest, international protests started happening. People in India protested, people in London protested. We went to, I think even in Maryland or somewhere in the US, they went to the one of the ambassador's houses. So it's going to be that way. It's going to be something we're going to all keep the fire burning. That's why I think it's going to be sustainable. It's not one person. Everyone's tired of this nonsense that we've been living through, you know? All right. I think that might be all the time we have. But before we end, if you wanted to mention any other causes or plug anything, your social media, like anything like that, now's the time to do that. I don't really know the causes that I want to plug right now, but I just want to say something to people is, you know, if you use social media and you see a lot of the things happening in the world, I just beg you not to look away. You know, first of all, just more so because the way the world works, it could be you any day. You know, I've had friends in countries where protesters have been shot at. I've had friends in Belarus, for example, where a protest was going on and the, the military, the police was authorized to use force on protesters. And when that was going on, I never imagined it would be me. I never imagined that would ever be Nigeria. But, you know, I still reposted those things because, you know, the people it's happening to, I know them, you know, and I felt like, you know, support this, like support my friends, create awareness. So just even for the fact that, one, it could just be you any day. The second reason is just when you see these things happening, like you, no one deserves these things. So I feel like, you know, we just kind of owe it to just help them shout. Like in Congo, there's the cobalt coltan, I'm not sure, but one of the most valuable minerals that we use in all our phones and all our technology. Modern day slavery is going on there because militants are being used to intimidate people to leave the land so they could extract these minerals at very cheap prices. In Jamaica, for example, um, I think there's a flooding going on right now and they're trying to create awareness to help the people who have been affected by the flood. What else could I even think of? Somewhere in the middle of the Caribbean, there is currently an oil tanker sinking. And if that sinks, that could probably be one of the, the biggest natural disasters and it would significantly impact the like quality of life in the Caribbean islands, you know? Like all these things are happening. And, you know, I just feel like if you see it, just repost it. Like you don't, need, you don't even need to read it. You might not have the time to read it, but somebody else who sees it might, and that might make all the difference. You know, but I don't think it takes anything to do, you know? So I'm just, I don't know, man. I don't know. I just wish people would do that more. That's a lot. That's the only thing I said. I just wish people would share these things more. The world needs to see what's going on. Like COVID really opened our eyes. Don't you feel that sense of, of clarity in like in don't you feel that sense of clarity like during this period? A lot of the injustices going on in the world to me, they've never been more clear. And I believe we owe it to the people going through this to not allow it to disappear into 
you know, when things go back to normal, it shouldn't just fade into the background that people are dying in all these places or this is going to happen in all these places, you know? Definitely, yeah. So thank you again, man, for coming on. This has been the news section of the podcast. I've been your host, Thomas Holton. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas underscore underscore Holton. We appreciate everyone for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to The Alligator Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on Twitter at The Alligator, as well as find all of our latest stories at alligator.org.